me and the rest of everybody. And it's hard to join who God is within the song that we can sing to Him. Let him know that we care. Let Him know that He's important to us by singing off key or whatever you sing like. It doesn't matter. It's all good. I'm going to turn over the speaker at this point. Today is the day. What does that mean? What does that mean? Today is the day. Does that mean it's just Sunday that we can come and enjoy what God has done and what God's doing? No. It's every day, right? It's every day. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited that you're here. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you making an effort to come out and join us this morning for services. And uh, it's a good thing to be together and to honor our God with being together. And, um, you know, there's lots of, uh, lots of great things that occur um, when you get together with a community of believers. And uh, I, love, I love singing. I love uh, taking the Lord's Supper together. It's a good time to re- renew our uh, relationship with God and that commitment that we've made to Him. Um, I love diving into Scripture with, with other believers and being able to understand the Scriptures better. Uh, I think it's a good time. And I love the restart for the week. How many of you look at Sunday as your restart for the week? Yeah. I don't know if they change yeah. calendars or not, but you know, sometimes you can get calendars that start on Monday. I love my calendar to start on Sunday because for me, Sunday is a restart to the week. I get a fresh new start. I get a fresh new perspective. I get a fresh new recharge of oomph, whatever it is, a motivation to take on whatever it is that's gonna, that God's going to send our way this week. Um, there's a, a good thing. Um, that we find when we, we gather together on Sundays. But every other day of the week, we can celebrate him on those days too. We don't have to wait till Sunday. We can celebrate every day, and uh, that's a good thing too. But we find ourselves in this predicament because God asks us to do certain things, and we have a tendency to think that it's okay to just do our own thing. And um, whether it be selfishness or just outright rebellion, we end up falling short of what it is that God wants us to do. This morning, we're going to talk about uh, another relationship or another type of relationship. And really, it has to do with with every kind of relationship. It's not just parents and children. If you're here this morning and you have children uh, and, and you're uh, or you have parents that are here, um, that's wonderful. And that's great. And you're going to be able to apply the things that we hear this morning directly to your life. Um, but even if you're, if you're not in a situation where there's kids at home, these principles can be used and applied uh, to many relationships. No matter what status you find yourself in, um, the content here uh, should be helpful and beneficial for relationships with each other. When good kids go bad, really kids go bad? As a parent, you know they do. Caden, Caitlin, I want you to understand that as soon as Kennedy and in fact, in fact, probably already, before she's even here, you already know that there's just just rebellious streak within her, right? Three o'clock in the morning, she's poking on your bladder, right? Kids do that, and they do that at a very, very young age, and they just and it never sometimes it never changes. And I don't know about you, but there's there's some families that have that. You just think about the family and what comes to mind? That one rebellious, wild child, right? Were you that wild child? Sometimes I was that wild child. 
But think about it. In reality, every single one of us are that wild child in God's eyes. We've all rebelled. We've all come to that place where we have done things that we shouldn't have done. Dealing with a rebellious child, rebellious sibling, maybe it's a rebellious parent. These ideas can help you deal with these and those types of relationships. How's a parent become rebellious? Well, hit mid-50s and 60s and some parents just go through a, I don't know, it's almost like they're back in middle school again. You know, they just have that real rebellious streak. So we're going to talk about whose fault it is. So whose fault is it when, when a, a child becomes rebellious or when someone at work becomes rebellious? Or maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a brother or sister. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a coworker. It seems like in today's society that there's no such thing as a bad kid or rebellious child. Any problems a child is having is blamed on some sort of environmental issue. Right? Well, it's, it's their environment. That's why they're that way. Or it's, it's because of the predicaments that they were put in at an early age. And that's why, that's why this child is this way. It's great for kids these days because they, they come home from school with a bad report card. And they present it to mom and dad. And they simply say to their parents, you know what? Um, uh, here's my bad report card. But uh, let's, let's talk about it a little bit. Because it's either got to be a genetic problem or, or some sort of environment problem. Right? Uh. Not the case. Whose fault is it? It's the rebel's fault. B.F. Skinner, um, you may be familiar with some of his um, findings. Uh, uh, he, he basically said children are a blank slate. They're completely shaped by their environment. I think that even in our church, we come up with this idea, and even in in religious settings, we come up with this idea that there's a certain recipe, there's a certain way that if you raise a child that they're going to turn out uh, just perfectly. If we put the right ingredients in and we put in the right time and we put the temperature to the right setting, that these cookies are just going to pop out just right. How many of you have a secret cookie recipe at home that you don't share with anybody? Do you? I'm not going to ask you. You probably will expect me knocking on your door and trying to steal it. I like cookies. But kids are not like cookies. We can't come up with some sort of recipe, some sort of uh, – it's not a, a clear-cut set pattern that we just have to do this and this and this, and they're going to turn out just the way we want them to. I think Cameron wore it first, and I think it's in Castlin's drawer now. The shirt says, I'm one smart cookie. The problem is kids aren't cookies. There may be many ideas and many thoughts all over. Uh, you've heard them over the last several decades. If you follow a particular proven idea, and a set of parents can control the outcome of their child. Bill Gothard, even though he was never married and never raised a family, um, he had a, a program that was called Basic Youth Conflicts. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it. Um, even though he did get a lot accomplished, he really pushed this idea that kids could be shaped by a particular set of guidelines. And if taught in this way, they would turn out a well-functioning member of society. This concept, if you follow a, a certain recipe, they will absolutely turn out right, is unspoken but implied truth. And many seem to buy into it. Whose fault is it? 
It's not the parents' fault. It's not the system's fault. It's not the environment's fault. It's not anybody else's fault, but it's the rebel's fault. It's the one who has rebellion in their heart. That's where the fault lies. And I'm not trying to look for an excuse for when my kids turn out bad, okay? That's not what I'm here for. I'm not saying they will. I'm not saying they won't. They have their moments, good and bad. Sometimes I wonder. That's not what I'm looking for here. What I'm looking for is I'm trying to get to the bottom of what we do with that rebellion. And what does God ask us to do with that rebellion? Parents have great influence, but we do not have ultimate control. Parents, there are things that we can do to help our kids and have a good relationship with God and have good relationships with other people. And there's, there's tools that we can give them to be successful in life, but we cannot control the outcome. We find the ultimate environment, don't we? In Genesis chapter 3, the ultimate perfect environment. God the Father, right? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, the first two individuals around on the planet, and they're in a perfect garden. Perfect dad, perfect kids, perfect garden. Utopian type world, what happens? They sin. They rebel. They go directly contrary to God's law. And it's all downhill from there. Rebellion was there and it's still here. Rebellion kills relationships. Why are we talking about rebellion? Because rebellion is what is what retards and completely restricts a good positive relationship. That's what tears relationships apart is that rebellion in each and every one of our hearts. I want you to look at a passage of scripture with me. Um, this is not our text, but I want us to go here real quick before we um, dive into our text. And this is an Old Testament book of the Bible. And uh, when you pull it up on your app, you may not even see it. Um, this this uh, book is called Ezekiel. Find it with me in your Bibles. If you brought your Bible, if you brought your phone, if you brought your tablet, find it with me. Ezekiel. It's in the Old Testament. It's going to be after Psalms and Proverbs. The abbreviation is typically EZE. Be careful because there's an EZR that's very close to the beginning. That's Ezra. We're not looking for Ezra. We're looking for Ezekiel. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Temptations, Ezekiel. So you find it about five or six books after um, Psalms and Proverbs. Ezekiel and uh, let's see. Now I've got myself all confused. Where are we going? Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. Let's look there. Did everybody find it? Ezekiel chapter 18. We're going to look starting in verse 1. It says, Then another message came to me from the Lord. Why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouth pucker at the taste. As surely I live, says the sovereign Lord, you will not quote this proverb anymore in Israel. For all people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. Very simple, very easy to understand concept. Now, let's look at where he goes. He tells us a little story so that we get the picture. Verse 5. Suppose a certain man is righteous and does what is right and just. 
He does not feast in the mountains before Israel's idols and worship them. He does not commit adultery and have intercourse with women during their, their menstrual period. He is, he is a merciful creditor, not keeping the items given as security by poor debtors. He does not rob the poor, but instead gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. He grants loans without interest, stays away from injustice, is honest and fair when judging others, and faithfully obeys the decrees and regulations. Anyone who does these things is just and will surely live, says the sovereign Lord. Pretty good guy, right? Pretty good guy. Got it all together. Does what God wants him to do. Even follows the Old Testament laws perfectly. Look at verse 10. But suppose that man has a son. Dun, dun, dun. Who grows up to be a robber and a murderer and refuses to do what is right. And that son does all the evil things his father would never do. He worships idols on the mountains, commits adultery, oppresses the poor, and helpless, steals from the debtors by refusing to let them redeem their security, worships idols, commits detestable sins, and lends money uh, at excessive interest. Should, should such a sinful person live? Nope. He must die and must take full blame. But suppose that sinful son, in turn, has a son who sees his father's wickedness and decides against that kind of life. This son refuses to worship idols on the mountains and does not commit adultery. He does not exploit the poor, but instead is fair to his debtors and does not rob them. He gives food to the hungry and provides clothes to the needy, and he helps the poor, does not lend money at interest, and obeys all my regulations and decrees. Such a person will not die because of his father's sins. He will surely live but the father will die for his many sins for being cruel robbing people and doing what is clearly wrong among his among his people verse 19 what you ask doesn't the child pay for the parent's sin no for if the child does what is right and just and keeps my decrees that child will surely live focus in on verse 20 the person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sin, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sin. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. We have seen three generations here. We see grandpa, we see we see son and we see grandson, right? We see three generations and we see alternating in those generations, good, bad, and then good. God lays it out plain and simple for everyone to understand. Whose fault is it? It's the rebel's fault. The one who sins, that's the one that's going to pay the penalty for the sin. Yes, there are consequences that, that roll down from generation to generation. We're not denying that. But as far as sin goes, God says the one who sins is the one who will pay for that sin. The one who is guilty. Because of these recipe ideas, we, we, we feel extremely guilty when our kids don't turn out right. I understand that. Anytime one of mine does something that they know that they shouldn't do, it makes me sad. If we're blessed with kids who are conforming and passive, we go through this life with a ridiculous amount of pride thinking that, that we're all that. Many examples of men who have started uh, uh, whole programs based on their parenting skills 
based on their ability to raise kids and halfway through have a rebellious child and what happens to that program? <laughs> it's no longer in existence because everything he thought was working perfectly and all of a sudden doesn't work anymore. Proverbs 22 and verse 6, we even use this verse. We say, direct your children onto the right path, and when they are older, they won't leave it. Right? It goes into it. And it's, the verse is true. The verse is still there. It's, it's still a truth. But sometimes I think we bank on those promises so much so that when something does happen, we get all bent out of shape, and we're all upset, and we're all frustrated. Oftentimes, those who use... The, Proverbs 22, 6. They either don't have children yet or they feel like they have control of their children for the moment. Listen closely. We have a great responsibility and have huge influence over our children and their outcome. But please understand that we do not have ultimate control. The choice is still the child's. Right? So let's look at this story that we're going to we're going to kind of dissect and dive into. A father and his son, it's a very typical story. We find this one often. We see it often. We hear it often. There's literally thousands of different application points that we can pull out of this particular story. Today, I want you to put on the lens of this. What does this story tell us about rebellion? Okay? What does it tell us about rebellion and how God responded to this rebellion? And how should we respond? That's the lens. You got your lenses on? All right. Now, let's go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Go with me there. New Testament. Luke chapter 15. We're going to start reading in verse 32. Luke chapter 15. No, we're not going to start reading in 32. That's the end of the story. We're going to start reading in verse 11. We're going to start reading in verse 11. Luke chapter 15 and verse 11. Take a survey here. There's not, not too many people falling asleep yet. Maybe, maybe a few. Let's stand as we read this parable. Let's stand as we read God's word. Are you okay with that? Doesn't hurt us any. Gives God honor as we read this passage of scripture. Luke chapter 15, we're going to start reading in verse 11. It's a very common story, but I want you to key on a few key elements here, and uh, we'll read the passage of Scripture, all right? Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide, divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. Verse 14. About that time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and, and the, man, the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When, his, when he finally came to his senses, verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. 
I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Verse 20, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring and put on his finger and sandals on his feet and kill the, the, the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost and now is found. So the party began. Verse 25, out in the field. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what is going on? Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. And we are celebrating because his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing to you have told me. And all, and all the time you never gave me even one goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Verse 31, his father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. We have to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now is found. Let's look to God in word of prayer. God, thank you so much for this story, for this passage of scripture that we can, that we can dive into and understand and get a, get a better feeling for what you're like. How you deal with rebellion and how we should deal with rebellion. God, I pray that you'll bless in each and every one of our lives. As we, we look at the, at the different individuals and the different relationships that we have in our lives, God, if we've got those ones that are being rebellious, or maybe, God, maybe it's us that's being rebellious, God, help us to be able to understand these things better after this morning. Help us to gain understanding from your word. Send your spirit among us. Guide us and lead us in your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Don't close your Bibles. Don't click away. I want you to stay right here in this passage of Scripture. I want to point, I just, just pull out just a couple of things that stood out to me. But before we do that, I want you to take just two or three minutes with someone that you're sitting next to. I want you to just, just talk about this passage of Scripture. Well, maybe what it means to you, maybe what stood out to you, maybe it's something that you've never heard before or never thought about before that stood out to you today. Just take two or three minutes, okay? Ready, set, go. Talk to the person next to you, or, or if you're not sitting next to somebody, move to somebody close and um, so you can talk, all right? Go ahead, talk. It's okay to talk out loud in church. Keep going. Talk, talk, talk. What stood out to you about this passage?
okay, now switch. If one of you is doing all the talking, switch and let somebody else talk. conversations I probably won't have much more insight than what you've just gained right but you know what I I prepared a few things that I want to share with you and so I could bring each of you up here and you could just share what your thoughts are on this passage of scripture which would probably be an epic service it'd probably be the best ever but some of you may not be comfortable doing that so we're going to continue on. Let me just share a few things that I've grabbed out of this passage. And then I've got four key ingredients of how we're supposed to, how we need to deal with a rebellious child. Look at this passage of scripture. I love, there's just a couple of key phrases that if you've got your Bible, I want you to highlight and, and underline them uh, uh, with me. Look at where it says, when he came to his senses. Do you see that? What verse is that in? Find it. What's that? 17. So when he came to his senses, it wasn't just, oh man, it's a bummer. I messed up. He wasn't caught. He wasn't. Well, what happened? He fully came to his senses. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But there was full repentance in what he said, right? It wasn't just, oh, bummer. I'm just going to go back and hope dad takes me back. It was full on repentance. There was, there was, there was, there was everything that, that we understand as repentance right here in this passage of Scripture. When the Father was... Uh, I want you to understand also that... And it's interesting to me that sometimes we hear the story and we, we think that, well, the Father was out there watching for the Son each and every day. He was wanting that Son to come back. And He was out there watching. Maybe He even went into town to try to find Him, to bring Him back. We don't see that. That's not in the scripture. Do you see it anywhere? Is it 17 and a half in your Bible? Or 18 and a half? It's not there. The father didn't go out looking for the son. In fact, he was there going about business. He was there at the farm or there at the, wherever he was going about business as usual. The son, when he returns... You know, it's, it's funny that there's, there's times when we get in a place where we're in a really bad spot and we're at the very bottom of our, uh, of our valley and we're like, man, I am, I am really sorry and this, this is a really bad situation and I'm going to go back and repent. And then when we get back into the presence of, of that person, it gets watered down. You know what I mean? Our pride takes over and it starts to get watered down. But this son isn't that way. When he gets back, he says the exact same thing to his father that he had intended to say. Dad, I'm no longer, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's accepted responsibility for his actions. He's come back with the hope that he can become just a hired slave. But look at the way the father responds. For this son of mine was dead. The father had let go. Of the boy. He had moved on. And it's very important to realize this truth. He had moved on. This son was dead to him. 
He was no longer even alive in this father's mind. And then, of course, you see the son that had stayed home. And he gets upset and he gets frustrated. And like, why? I can't even get you to, to kill a goat to have a party with my friends. But now this son that has spent everything that you gave him, half of everything you owned, he squandered it. And now you're throwing him a party? Look at what the dad responds with. Everything I have is yours. All the way along, everything I have is yours. Many aspects of this story don't fit with the culture of the time. This was another very shocking story to the crowds. It was, it was hard for them to listen to. It was difficult for them to even grasp the concepts that were being presented here. So how do we deal with a rebel? I love this story. How do we deal with the rebel? Four things to help us deal with the rebel in our lives. Various forms. Could be parent, could be coworker, could be a child, could be it could be anybody. How do we deal with that rebel? If we're gonna if we're gonna deal with this, if we're gonna have this conversation. If if you came to me and your child was being rebellious and you didn't know what to do with that. We'd go for a walk or we'd go for a hike. We'd walk around the lake. We'd talk about this rebel in your life. About how this person had rebelled against God and rebelled against you. How this person had walked away. It's hard to deal with. You may not be in that spot right now, but think about it. What if you were? These are the things that I might say to you. These are the things that... If I was counseling in that situation, that I might share with you. Number one, when they, when they insist on leaving, when they insist on leaving, when the rebellious child insists on leaving, let them leave. Many of us who have a key rebel in our lives, we let this rebel dominate our lives. If it's a child, the rest of the family suffers because of that child's rebellion. We find that in the workplace even, if there's one that's rebellious, everyone seems to suffer because this one person is rebellious. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for them. I'm not saying that we shouldn't hope that they come to their senses. And, and if, if, but if we don't let them go, we can never get to that spot. And honestly, they will take us down that pathway to destruction. Our lives will be a mess. If we aren't careful, it's going to destroy relationships next to us. We have to let them go. Allow them to be dead to you. Parents, please understand that this is only age appropriate. I don't expect you to give your six-year-old a suitcase and send them on down the road. Even though there are times when you definitely feel like it. There's been times when we've been driving by the police station and I've stopped the car and I said, get out. They know that I probably mean it, but they also know that mom's in the car and they wouldn't there. They have had to get out before though. They've had to run home a couple of times. And it's a real bummer that we live on 402 because there's, it's only... I can only, I can't let him out in the middle of 402. It's just too dangerous out there. But please understand it's age appropriate. They have had to get out at the beginning of the, right there at the sign where we 
Why are you turning to our neighbors? They have had to get out there and run home because they've misbehaved. But we got to let them go. I think there's times we parents out of fear. We're, we're scared. Uh, we're, we're, we're fearful of what's going to happen, and we parent out of fear. And I, I, think we, I think we really prove that we lack trust in God by that way of parenting. We say things like, I'm so scared for when they start driving. <laughs> we seem to overthink almost every decision. We're so scared that if they, if they hear certain things, if they experience certain things, that they get this skewed perception of who God is and what life is all about. We try to stay in control of their lives. We're, we're holding on so tightly, most of the time based on fear of what might happen. Pure speculation. It's really not even speculation. It's, it's pessimism. We lack faith. We lack faith in God. There are many that decide to have the ultimate control in homeschool their kids. And I'm not opposed to that at all. There's many that decide that, you know what, they want their kids in a Christian school. And, and they, they you know, make, make ends meet so that they can send their kids to a Christian school. There are others that send their kids to public school because they, they want their kids to be that salt and light in a dark world. All three can produce wonderful families. Great adults. Some more strange than others. But they can all produce good quality people. But listen to me. If we're making choices about our parenting, if we're making those decisions based on fear, I'm confident that we're not going to be happy with the results. Any decision that we make out of fear of what might happen is, is kind of scary. Kids that are raised in fear have a much higher rate of rebellion. The children might make it through 12, 14, 16 years old, but then have a crazy rebellious streak when they hit 23, 24, 25, and some never grow out of that state of rebellion. Fear-based parenting produces hyper-control, which produces hyper-rebellion. You still got your Bibles open to Luke 15? Look at verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The, two young, the younger son came to his father. I want my share of the estate now before you die. So what did the father do? He agreed. Divided his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the son packed up and left. He went on to his wild living. The son left and the father Really let him go. Verse 24 For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. This son was dead to this dad. He had let him go. Dad tried to help the other brother understand. In verse 32, he says, We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has now come back to life. He was lost and now is found. How we deal with a rebel? Sometimes we have to let him go. Second, when things get rough, we can't run to the rescue. When things get rough, we can't run to the rescue. When things get tough, we can't run to the rescue. If we soften the blows, we lengthen the rebellion. Life has a way of giving us a swap when we make bad choices. God has a way of giving us a, a swift kick and disciplining us when we make bad choices. He doesn't take away the consequences. When we as a parent take away the consequences, children run from God. 
when God tries to administer some sort of discipline to the child, if we have protected that child from any form of discipline, from anything outside of your family, and even sometimes within the family, if we prevent that child from experiencing discipline, they run when God starts to discipline. They hate God. There's a hatred towards God. There's rebellion towards God when we put a pan in the pants, so to speak. You ever done that? Do kids ever do that? One of mine did once. Dad, I gotta go to the bathroom. Went in there and stuffed a bunch of Kleenex, a bunch of toilet paper in her pants because she knew she was gonna get spanking. I think as parents, we often do that. We often stick a pan in their pants so that they don't receive the discipline that they deserve, that they, are, they have coming. We become enablers, if you want to say it that way. Enablers make it easy for others to do wrong. If the father in our story would have heard that his kid was out of money and just had some wired down to town so that, so that the boy didn't have to feed the pigs, would the boy have come to his senses? Nope. Let's get real. I've seen this happen so often. Johnny, sit right here while you're eating your ice cream. What happens five seconds later? Johnny gets up, takes off running, trips on a crack in the sidewalk, and splats his ice cream cone all over the ground. What takes place next? Oh, it's okay, it's okay. Mom and Dad run back into Dairy Queen and get him another ice cream and give him right back to Johnny. What just happened? Let the child deal with the consequence of their bad choice. Well, preacher, that's just mean. That's just mean. That's, that, that's rude. No. It's mean to let them think that they can do whatever they want and get away with it. Rebellion will be great if we put a pan in the pants. We've got to let them experience consequences. If you have a spouse that's too hungover or just too lazy to go into work on Monday morning and you call in for them and tell the boss, well, they're sick. What's taking place? You've just enabled them. You've removed the consequence. If you lie to the cops to get your children out of trouble, you've enabled them. Enabler makes sin easier. It makes it easier for the person to sin. The next one is a rescuer. You've seen them. They remove the cost of whatever that wrong behavior would have, would have provided or would have, would have cost. It's very similar in nature to the enabler, except this one's more like the person who literally just puts that pain in the pants. When it's time for discipline, it's like, hold on a sec, I got this. The, rescue of one, or the rescuer is the one who hires the best, best defense attorney in the, in, the, in the country so that the one who just got in a big, bunch of big trouble doesn't have to pay the consequence for their sin, for their crime. Luke 15 and verse 16, look at it. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. No one rescued him. No one enabled him. He got to the bottom of the valley. Another passage of scripture that's an amazing one to me uh, uh, God is talking to the Israelite nation and they've, 
They've got judges at this point. In Judges chapter 10, verses 10 through 16, he says, Finally, they cried out to the Lord for help, saying, We have sinned against you because you have abandoned, uh, we have abandoned you as our God and have, have served the images of Baal. Verse 11 says, The Lord replied, Did I not rescue you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the, the, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the, the Moabites, or Moanites, when they oppressed you? You cried out to me for help, and I rescued you. Yet you have abandoned me and served other gods. So I will not rescue you anymore. What? God doesn't rescue people when they're asking for help? How is that possible? Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them rescue you in your hour of distress. Verse 15, but the Israelites pleaded with the Lord and said, we have sinned. Punish us as you see fit. Only rescue us today from our enemies. This was a long period of time, 16, 18, 20 years. Some, some people say even more than that. But this particular time was a pretty good chunk of time. They were in slavery. They were, they were taken over. They, they were just completely routed. Everything was stolen from them. And then they would grow a crop and the, 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 country would come in and just clean out their crop and take everything that they had. These people were sick of it. The Israelites were sick of it. Then the Israelites put aside their foreign gods and served the Lord. Look at what the end of verse 16 says. Judges 10 verse 16. And he was grieved by their misery. He's still not rescuing them from their misery. He's sad about it. Oh man, that's a bummer. But he's still not rescuing him, rescuing them. God is not a happy grandpa in the sky, hoping that everyone has a good day. Sometimes God didn't rescue his people. Sometimes God allowed them to be punished like they should have been punished. Don't rescue, don't rescue them. If they got discipline coming, let them have it. Verse three, or number three, rather. If they come back, run to greet them. This was a genuine emotional second chance. The father was not holding the past over the son's head. He ran to greet him. It was a full-on emotional recovery, right? Uh, chapter 15, Luke, verse 20. Look at it. It says, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. And then you know the rest of the story. The party began. When that rebellious child comes to their senses and comes back, we need to run to greet them. Colossians 3.13 says, make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Run to them. But here's the balancer. Number four, after they're back, don't punish the obedient. After they're back, don't punish the obedient. The older brother was angry. He wouldn't go in the party. His father came out and begged with him. said, you know what? This is all these years I've slaved. For, he said, all these years I've slaved for you and, and told the father, but you've refused to do anything good, any single good thing good to me. What's the father say? Look, dear son, you've always stayed with me. And everything I have is yours. Restoring the relationship 
putting all of that back together doesn't mean that we remove those consequences. Remember in 2 Samuel when, when, when uh, Bob comes hopping in with his funny wig on? <laughs> and what's his name? Is in the, what's his, what was his name? Didn't he have a strange name? What's his name? King, King who and the ducky. What's the veggie tales? King George. There it is, King George. I knew it wasn't David. I knew it didn't use the king. Remember the veggie tales? Sitting in the tub with all the duckies and Nathan, Bob the tomato, hops in and tells King George about what he had done. I know that's not the real Bible story. David had sinned. He had taken Bathsheba as his wife as, and, and had, had, had adultery with her and then killed her husband so that he could have her as his wife and not be caught with the whole scenario. Nathan comes in, the prophet Nathan comes in and tells him what he has done and presents the, the truth to him. David confesses to Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13 and 14. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter, utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. There was no consequence removed other than the consequence of the sin against God. God can remove the consequence. God can take that emotional side of the, of the consequence away. But sometimes God can't take the consequence away. There's a family that's got that wild child and always in trouble. He's always in trouble at school and several times had run-ins with the law. The family had been saving for a family vacation. They're going to go big time this time. They're going to go on a cruise, all the luxuries, stop off at several islands, at the high-end resorts, and uh, end the trip with a whole week in Disney World. Guess what happens? Just about the time they get enough money saved up to start making the reservations, the wild child gets in some deep trouble. He lands himself in jail and needs to be bailed out. At the expense of the family vacation, the child, the lawyers, all of that gets paid instead of going on vacation. What does that teach the rest of the family? What message does that give to everyone at home who is doing what God wants them to do? Who is following the family rules and regulations and commands? In order to get attention in this family... I guess I have to misbehave. We're sending the wrong message when we take away the consequences. We end up hurting not just them, but all those around them. Be careful not to remove the consequences because often that punishes others in its wake. When we restore the relationship, don't remove the consequences. Don't be surprised, though, if that someone isn't a little upset with you when you don't remove those consequences. Sometimes there's, it takes a little while before they, before they come around and realize that, you know what, that was the right thing. Let's just take the classic affair situation. There's an affair, adultery happens, the guilty party is, is truly repentant, and the other one takes them back. 
They're working hard to get their relationship back on track. And they're, they're working through the situation. And then the guilty one says, well, well why don't you trust me? Duh. Because you aren't trustworthy. Trust can be rebuilt, but that's part of restitution. That's part of the consequence. The one hurt by the infidelity will be, will be the grantor of the trust when the untrustworthy works to become trustworthy again. The emotional side can be taken care of. We can forgive, but we don't want to remove the consequences. I want to close with one last passage of scripture. I don't know if I've got it in there. Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18. Turn with me to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 18. And uh, I want you to look at this passage to end our service this morning. Jeremiah chapter 18. Can you find it? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah. So it's it's before you get to uh, the one we were at, Ezekiel, a little while ago. Jeremiah chapter 18. Look at it with me, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord spoke to Jeremiah. He says, Go down to the potter's house, and I will give you my message there. So Jeremiah went down to the potter's house. He peers through the window. No, it doesn't say that. But he saw him working on the potter's wheel, right? He was using his hands to make a pot of clay. But something went wrong with it. The potter didn't accidentally bump the wheel and make the clay fall over. Look at what it says. Something went wrong with it. The pot. Something went wrong with it. So what did the potter do? So he used that clay to make another pot the way he wanted it to be. Then the Lord spoke to his word to me, to, to Jeremiah. Family of Israel, can't I do the same thing with you, says the Lord. You are in my hands like this, like the clay in the potter's hand. There may come a time when I will speak about a nation or a kingdom that I will pull up by its roots or that I will pull down to destroy it. But if the people of that nation stop doing that evil thing that they have done, I will change my mind and not carry out my plans to bring disaster to them. When we mess up, God takes us, that lump of clay, and he presses us back down into the wheel. When we rebel, when he's not able to make what he was hoping out of us, God's always got a plan, right? He's always got plan A for each and every one of us. This is what this person is capable of. This is the personality that I have poured into them. And this is the abilities and talents that I have given them. And this is what I want to raise up in this person. But when it, when there's something that goes wrong with it, I'm one of those. And so are every single one of you. We have all messed up. We have all come to the place in our lives where we're like, you know what, I know God wants me to do this. I feel like, I feel like this is the place I need to be, but you know what, I just, I just don't feel like it today. I just don't want to. I'm just not all that into it. That's when God says, okay. And he smashes us right back into a big 
clump on the, on the table. He presses us down into the wheel to raise up something else that he wants us to be. It can never be that same exact pot that he had created to begin with. It can never be that same vessel that he had created to start with. But it's something that he wants us to be. I love that. I think that's, that's plan B. Or for some of us, C or D or double Y. It's way down the list, right? Sometimes... But we're still there on the potter's wheel. He's still capable of making us into something amazing. We will not in this lifetime experience the removal of all the consequences of our rebellion. But we can realize that he's not done with us yet. We're still on the wheel. He's going to raise up a new vessel that can be used by him. This parable of the prodigal son... This parable of the lost child that runs off and is, is rebellious and then has to be brought back. It's not, a, it's not a parable all about responsibility. It's a parable about hope. God can restore us. God can pull us back into where we need to be. I don't know where you're at right now. If we had to go around the room and... On a scale of 1 to 10, rate our relationship with God. There may not be very many 10s in the room today. We may hear numbers like 2, 3. They may be way below average if 5 is average. There may be some that are up there, 8 and 9s. But you know what? It doesn't matter where we are. God is making us into something that He can use. All we've got to do is remain moldable, pliable. We've got to understand that if, if, any, if at any time we decide to rebel, there's a good chance he's going to go right back into that potter's wheel, right back into that clump of clay. Rebellion costs relationships. It causes all kinds of trouble with relationships. How do we deal with it? Well, we've seen from this passage of Scripture we don't want to just let them linger. Let them go if it's time to let them go. Turn them loose. Let them hit rock bottom. Let them understand that, you know what? There's, there's not going to be consequences removed. That it's, you just got to live with those things. But when they come back, when their senses are, are, they come to their senses and they're coming back, we need to run to them. And we need to embrace them and forgive them and hold them up. We need to understand that even when we do that, we need to be careful because removing any consequence might affect everyone else around them. All of those other relationships that are close to us could be affected if we remove those consequences. I hope there's been some things that you could grab a hold of this morning and um, hold on to, enjoy.